This is Joseph Gervasi. I'm here with Jesse Townley, a.k.a. Jesse Luscious. Today is August 31st, 2013. Uh, we're recording this interview at... The Pens View Inn. The Pens View Inn in beautiful Philadelphia. Uh, this is part of Loud Fast Philly, and I should mention that uh, Stacy Finney, Nee Gold, previous interview subject, is sitting in on this interview reading a book. Uh, Hi. So she may <laughs> contribute something at some point. Hey, Jesse. How's it going? Uh, I'm glad that we finally uh, got a chance to do this thing, because I wanted to talk to you since the beginning, because for me, like what you did in Philadelphia played a big part in setting me into motion to all the things that I did later. Mm -hmm. um, so let's start with... Young Jesse, uh, whom I just found out grew up very close to where I currently live. Yes. Uh, so, what year were you born? 1970. Okay. And yeah, and New Jersey, and then New Brunswick, and then we moved to Philly when I was three. Okay. And then rented a place in center, two places in Center City, and then moved to Wissahickon in 1980, I guess, after my parents divorced, and then my mom remarried. Yeah, uh, so about 1980, moved to Ro Rochelle Avenue, and then my stepdad and my mom divorced a few years later. We moved down the street, so it's all Wissahickon, mm -hmm. by the 100 steps, which goes down to the Wissahickon Creek. Right. Right by the Wissahickon train station. Yeah, it's yeah. very weird for me. I, all these <laughs> years that I've kind of known you, I never knew that you were right yeah, down yeah. by where I live. Um, so tell me about what, what that area was like at the time, probably similar sure. to what it's like now, but I mean, for you growing up there, what was it like? Well, so my folks were college-educated, uh, they were librarians, writers, um, English teachers, um, and so, very white. So we moved into the middle block, Rochelle Avenue. There's, well, it's a three-block street basically. The top block, the 300 block, is all families that have been there forever. All basically white trash who are really proud of. And this is back then, by the way. So I, I don't know about now. Mm -hmm. um, they were very proud of not going into Center City because you know all those types of people live there. <laughs> right. And you know East Falls was absolutely no go because all of those people live there. Etc. You know, and so, and then the 200 block was kind of like the middle block where people like my folks could move in. We were still outsiders, even though we lived there for many, many years. But we were able to get along with most of the people there, and then kind of like more professionals, less blue collar, lived in that block. It was kind of more of a mix. And then the bottom block, the 100 block, was kind of like the upper end of the neighborhood. Like at the very bottom of the block is uh, Tom Cronin, who's, who was the head of a municipal union. The union. Yeah. I know Tom. Oh, okay, Very yeah. well. Well, he and my mom are close old friends. Oh, so, and she, and she was in his, his union as a librarian uh, at the Free Library of Philadelphia. So there you wow. go. Yeah, Tom. So yeah, so he, so he lives at the bottom of that block. And so like that's kind of like the probably the highest echelon of you know, and, and then like there were I think there might have been some mixed race couples in that block when I was growing up. Um, so people at the top of the block probably oh, not yeah, up to that. Not. Yeah. Ooh. <laughs> what is our block coming to? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I remember when uh, a black family was thinking about buying in the second block, and like I heard about it from like my friends' 
parents. They were like, oh, you know, if they moved in here, you know, property values, blah, blah, blah. This is it's fucking Philadelphia. Yeah, yeah. To be really blunt. Like, and so that was, um, yeah, I had like, I, I remember as a teen, I was, I had a girlfriend who was black and we were uh, kissing in front of the Wisconsin train station. That's the very bottom of the block. Mm-hmm. And there was a drive-by epithet. And it's just like, fuck. God, this fucking neighborhood sucks. You know, so I was really happy to get out, you know, go to West Philly, go to hang out at the Wooden Shoe Bookstore, which is where I spent a lot of time. And then as soon as I graduated high school, I moved immediately to a squat at 51st in Baltimore. Okay. Well, I guess we'll go back a little bit before we get into that. But, yeah, but um, right. So what? So young young Jesse, you know, li- living in this neighborhood, like what were your, prior to your interest in or discovery of punk, what were your interests as a, you know, a young person? Just well, I was really into hard rock. Mm-hmm. John Jett and ACDC and a lot of the I used to listen to WMMR all the time I didn't like WISP for some reason I don't know why they're kind of a, they're sort of interchangeable aren't they pretty much I mean much, at the time yeah. definitely yeah at the time yeah, yeah. yeah I don't know what they do now I don't know yeah. <laughs> thankfully I'm really um, but yeah like there's like John DeBella the morning zoo guy on WMMR I listen to him all the time but Pierre Robert man that Pierre dude Robert. sucked yeah <laughs> <laughs> right yeah so you know so it was definitely but like I went to, uh, I mean, I was brought up pretty liberal. My parents marched in civil civil rights marches in the 60s. My grandma was a Roosevelt Democrat. Uh, She was a wave in World War II. Mm -hmm. And so, growing up with her, like, I learned really quickly, like, if I had to say something, or I had a strong opinion about something, I would have to back it up, because she would just eviscerate you if you had your shit if you're off. Right, right. You're like, oh, really? Well, what about this? What about this? And, which is great for me, I mean, because it really made me, and like, my whole family, we were all from that same mold, so it was kind of just natural to fit into that, and so that definitely influenced me being able to deal with punk rock and with slings and arrows of... The know, bullshit detector and everybody, uh, you know, yeah. being called out on their, their shit. Yeah, and being able to defend yourself and like, be, uh, have, have a good, um, uh, be, be able to deal with people in like fair ways but firm ways mm-hmm. you know I think people I mean now I'm a boss right I'm the general manager of Alternative Tentacles so it's like I have to and I in that in this job I haven't had to fire anybody but I've had to fire people in its previous job and this is a little further afield but basically but it all comes back to that being being, be, being able to be fair and firm mm-hmm. and like give people direction and work with them and take input and be and it also comes back to punk rock too and like be trying to be trying to be as as egalitarian as possible but in a situation where there has to be decisions made you can't be wishy-washy like if you're dealing with a small business especially like you have to make hard decisions or you're done because you're probably on the edge of a precipice at all times it could easily (laughs) take a dive right into the toilet especially especially in the music business yeah yeah which is certainly in a state of volatile flux at present and has been for a while. For a while, yeah. Yeah. It's this historic time in music business. <laughs> historic. That's a, yeah. that's a nice way of putting it. Yeah. I'm glad that you're still in business. <laughs> yeah, me too. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, but so, so, but growing up, like, I, I guess, like being aware of the racist stuff that's going on in the neighborhood, I mean, gays were not even thought of, like, absolutely, you know. San Francisco, California was all gays and Mexicans. I'm being 
really, really Even polite. gay Mexicans, too? That's just out of here. I don't, <laughs> I don't want to think about that. <laughs> That's too much. Do Ask to... Timmy Quinn. Do you know Timmy? Mm-hmm. Yeah. He can tell you about gay Mexicans. Gay Mexicans. Anything <laughs> you need to know. <laughs> this is just good to know. But yeah, so... Um, but so be, being brought up that way, like in, in a, from a leftish kind of perspective, like I was really aware of that. And then I went to, you know, excellent public schools. I went to Greenfield Elementary in Center City, and then I went to Masterman for fifth and sixth grade. And then so I had a really excellent set of teachers, and being in Masterman was great because I had to deal with people I would never run into because it's a magnet school. Mm-hmm. And so people from all over the city, all different economic levels, etc., went there. And so like that was awesome. So like I got a lot of that. And then I went to Friends Select, which is a Quaker school in Center City, and from seventh grade to the end. And that was pre- pretty diverse. It, they had a lot of people who, like us, were middle class. Mm-hmm. So, but they also had some people who were freaking loaded. Good for them. And they lived in like beautiful center city townhouses, and, mm-hmm. you know, everything you could possibly imagine. Right. And, like there are definitely those kids too. And, you know, so I got a lot of, it was a really broad range. And now like I'm in touch with some of those people on things like Facebook and some of them are like, yeah, I've always loved punk rock. And I'm thinking like, really? Yeah. Okay, I mean, that's cool. You know, I don't, I remember like bringing like the feeders, Jesus sent from the rear and, <laughs> and playing it for my friend who was, an excellent guitarist, but was also really religious, mm-hmm. just to fuck with him. He was like, this is fucked up. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, he picked like, a good one. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, fucking punk rock. You know? Yeah, yeah. Of course you're going to play, you know, Jesus, fuck, you know, entering from the rear, fucking you in the ass. <laughs> just another faggot. Yeah, just another faggot. Yeah, yeah. the whole, whole nine yards. Yeah. Such a great song. Um, anyway. So how then did punk wind up coming into your life, and when, when was that? Well, it was study hall. And I, there was a couple of punks, like three, in at Friends Select, seventh and eighth grade, ninth grade, and then I remember the Beastie Boys came through with Murphy's Law opening and Public Enemy opening, and I remember that was licensed ill. So I remember a bunch of friends went to that. And this was, did you say nineteen eighty six or probably yeah? yeah. Just licensed, licensed ill. The Beastie Boys were headlining. Public Public Enemy were new. Right. And Murphy's Law we knew of but like I don't think anybody had seen them so um, I didn't go I also remember there was a black flag show that got shut down by the fire department 1985 I didn't go to that either do you remember where that show was supposed to be I don't know yeah it's fine all I know is like um, my weird friend Alexi went and he came back he was like Cop showed up, fire marshal showed up, got shut down. They all had long hair. <laughs> <laughs> that must have been disappointing. Yeah, and so, you know, and so. It wasn't on Church Street right down here, was it? In all, did Fat Howard put that show on? Because I, I don't remember who it was, but who was playing, but there, there was a show over on Church Street that as soon as it started, the cops came and shut it down. I, might, I don't know if that was that one. Yeah, it sounds like yeah. it could have been. So, yeah, so I had these, because I lived harder music so there was an overlap and all these people all the punks in school and weirdos I was a weirdo and a geek and a nerd so I fit we all hung out and I was starting to kind of learn the music like I knew who the Ramones were like my first 
concert was Joan Jett uh, at the, what's the Tower Theater in Upper Darby, is that mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, so, and the Ramones were opening, were supporting. Right. And so, like, we were there to see Joan Jett, like, in but then, like, they played Beat on the Brett with the baseball bat, and I was like, I recognize this song from, so, somehow, I, I guess WMMR had played it, I don't know when, but uh, <laughs> yeah. apparently. <laughs> One of the more transgressive moments. Yeah, I know, right? It's like, like what? <laughs> um, and then, I mean, I, I ended up seeing the Ramones a bunch of times afterwards when I actually knew more than one song. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I was seeing, like, the next show was ACDC at the Spectrum with Ingebe Malmsteen opening. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, then this kid came, this transfer student from, like, Indiana came in and he was, I was in study hall, I remember this, he was singing the words to Big Luge in My Backyard or Bitch and Camaro, one of those two. And I was like, what's that? And he said, it's this band called The Dead Milkman. And he made me tape. Yeah. The Dead Milkman, Big Luge in My Backyard on one side and the Sex Pistols, Nevermind the Bollocks on the other. That seems to be a that quintessential was a, star too. Yeah. <laughs> to punk, here you go. Yeah, it was kind of awesome. And then like my friend gave me a tape of Let Them Eat Jelly Beans. And then I went and bought pretty much every band on the A side of Let Them Eat Jelly Beans, the punk side. Mm -hmm. The weird side was kind of, yeah, it's a little too weird for me, uh -huh. most of it. Now, most of it's like, oh, that's nothing. But you know, yeah. at the time, you know, you're like brand new punk rockers, like how do you deal with like the offs or half Japanese or all these other like bizarre fucked up bands. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, the you straightforward approach is much more. Yeah, it's like Black Flag. Uh, uh, Bad Brains, DOA, Really Red, Circle Jerks, uh, Feeders, Subhumans from Canada. You can't go wrong. You know, yeah, like that really, is some solid shit. Yeah, and especially compared to like hard rock, like I was already a pop structured person. Mm -hmm. So So did you become aware shortly after that of, of a scene in Philadelphia? Yeah, um, it took me uh, a few months to get to a real show. Um, and that was Ruin, Lucky Blood Muffin, Mr. Meta, and somebody else at Grendel's Lair, which is here. You were there. You were at the show? Yeah. All right. There you go. That was my first show. That's where I broke show. my finger. <laughs> oh, yeah, you just mentioned that in the car. Yeah, yeah. Moshing in the pit with Timmy, with Timmy Quinn. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> so, yeah, so that was my first show. That's, that's why I hated the gap, because that became a gap. So that's, that's right. right. Yeah. That's right. I was just down there last night, and now it's, it's like It's T-Mobile. Yeah, no. like, yeah, it's getting punker by the day. Yeah. <laughs> Yet another corporation to hate, taking away my childhood. <laughs> but no, um, but see, that, that was my first show. Uh, my mom dropped me off down the street. And how did your parents feel about you going to some kind of event like this? Did, did they know what this thing was? I don't... They knew it was a live show, but it was a matinee. At least, it, yeah, it must have been a matinee. Um, but yeah, they kind of, they were, my mom was busy with my little brother, because he was a toddler at that point. And I was, my dad was concerned about some of the lyrics. They were both like creative people or, and or educated. Like my mom didn't, doesn't really write, but my, my dad's a writer. And so he had this history of being in bands, jazz bands. So he kind of got it, sort of, but not really. But he grew up in New York City in the 60s, and he ended up... Okay, this is a side story, I'm sorry. Oh, no, this is good. So, this yeah. is, so two... About five years ago, right, so when I'm about 30, 
seven. And I've been, by that point, I've been into underground music directly for uh, 20 years, easy, you know, a little more, 21 years. Um, he finally says, oh yeah, my friend took me to see this band probably heard of them the Velvet Underground and I'm like what <laughs> how long did it take you to fucking tell me that you saw the fucking Velvet Underground yeah it's like and it's not like they're like an unknown band yeah, yeah, yeah precisely that's an immediate phone call guess where I am yeah you know and, and it's probably a defining moment in the lives of, of many people you know those yeah. few who managed to see them at that time yeah. probably a well, he hated them. in the head he, hated them. He, he was like they were just like noise and like he was like friends with he was good friends with this guy who now I've, I've talked with, who's now a film, he's a, a experimental film guy. He was in this band called Figures of Light back then, like 70s to 74. And he started telling me stories about my parents. And he's like, yeah, we went to this big festival and they tell you about the time when they saw a blob. I'm like, no. And so like, I talked to my dad, I was like, what are you doing? You're killing me here. Yeah, and did he want to keep this information from you or he just didn't ever <laughs> think that you'd be just interested? Never, never crossed. He's like, oh, I guess, yeah, that would be interesting to you, huh? And I'm like, ugh. But you know that, that's fine. You know that's yeah. Uh, you would think I that some it. of the lyrics might appeal to them, considering that if they're left leaning. I mean, maybe some of it's so sarcastic and weird that it doesn't compute as like what exactly they're saying. But most of those bands that you mentioned are you know, ostensibly yeah. political left leaning type bands. Yeah, but they were they were kind of like my dad was really concerned with. Um, I played him some of the songs. He I played him the feeders version of. Have you ever been mellow? Six, 16 oh. tons. Oh, okay. With, yeah, it's called it. 50 Years. And yeah. when he got another day older, free trip to the vet. And he was like, oh, that's really sarcastic. It seems really harsh, though. Like, they're much less... They did not appreciate the harshness or the bluntness, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he was also really concerned, I remember, about the descendants. Uh, my world. My world is my mind. I'm locking myself inside. People think they can't get in. I have no use for them. And he, that, he, that, that alarmed him. He was like, you know, it's like, he oh, my, to see my team is, yeah, 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 totally. Yeah, yeah. And so, I get that. Yeah. But I was like, that's a great song. I love The Descendants, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, but that was kind of like the extent. And then when I um, moved out, like I graduated and within a week I was living at Conosquat in West Philly. And that was my first huge, real serious conflict with both parents. Because you elected to live in a squat. Yeah, they were like, my mom was like, I need to go there and make sure that it's okay. I'm like, no, that's not going to happen. <laughs> what do you tell, uh, tell us, about, uh, what was the name of the place again, the name of the squat? A Kana squat, K-A-N-A. What does that mean? It's from a book called Bolo Bolo. Okay. By PM, it's a semiotext book. All right, my brother's last name on Facebook is Bolo. Yeah. The international anarchist community. Uh-huh. Yeah. And Becca, Becca Bolo. Becca, I know her. Yeah. Becca. Um. I knew her when she was Becca from Connecticut, before she moved here, or as she moved here. And then she was going out with this guy, I don't remember his name, never mind. Anyway, but um, he, so she and I hung out a lot actually uh, with the Wooden Shoe, the local anarchist bookstore, and volunteered there and was abused by, made merciless fun of by Phil. He used to, he was part of that anarchist scene. He was a little older than me, and he moved out to San Francisco. Uh, before me. What is he making fun of you for, or was he? He called me a rich kid from Roxborough. <laughs> Those, yeah, right. <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> yeah, totally. I was like, okay, <laughs> thanks. Um, but I, I don't know. I, I don't think I was particularly anything. There was uh, so many good people, people then who were part of that. 
subsection of the scene, the super political anarchist um, people. But yeah, Becca Bolo, uh, Bull, um, came a little after me. Like I didn't know until touring, maybe coming back here through the Cabbage Patch Collective. The Cabbage Collective, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Cabbage Collective, Cabbage. Yeah. It's Cabbage Collective. Oh, sorry. No Cabbage. But that's fine. You were thinking of those little dolls, which we're often confused with. We were really popular for a while, and then nobody wanted us. <laughs> yeah, the Cabbage Collective. Yeah. But anyway, that's... Uh, so the squad, was, you said it was at 51st and what? Baltimore. Oh, Baltimore. Okay. Oh, yeah, right near that whole... Was it one, Was it owned by that uh, kind of land trust of of hippies who bought several no. different... Okay, so you know what I'm talking about with that. That, that Which was my brother's house was part of. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, yeah, there was the, we used the, their house as kind of like our base, so we would go there and get water and lug it up the street. Their house is in my brother's, the Center Garden, or the place in here? I don't know. It's, a, it's on the block of 48th. Okay, yeah, yeah. 40th and 49th on Baltimore. And then, like, next door was a house that they started squat, and then they ended up doing sweat equity. I think they owned it. Probably not squat. The Cinder Garden and not squat are both at 48th and Baltimore, okay. right, right next to each other. Yeah, the, and I think that, that they were both part of the land trust thing. Okay. Uh, then that would, that would be yeah, because yeah. those people, the land trust people eventually sold the house to my brother you know, ah. for, for a dollar or something. Oh, awesome. I always encourage him, like, sell it to University of Pennsylvania <laughs> for a quarter of a million dollars <laughs> and move to rich people Roxborough, which he'll never do. <laughs> Live in luxury with me in Roxborough. In Roxborough, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so that was, um, yeah, that's exactly where it was. And then there was a place called Hell Squat down maybe in that same block. It was pretty hellish. It was like, because, you know, like, squats are different. Like, some are, like, political squats, some are party squats, some are just keep under-the-radar squats. And they're all, they all have their purposes, I guess. So how would you typify, then, your squat? Political. Okay. Like, there was, we would put up banners when there were marches down the street. Okay. And, like, we were very, like, we're here, this is what we're doing. We knew the neighbors... Um, neighbors were stoked because we weren't a shooting gallery. Mm-hmm. And that's literally what the woman said. So I, she was still in the 70s, I think. Yeah. So that's not a shooting gallery. <laughs> and what was, the state of, what was the state of your place? I mean, it was a pretty dilapidated... Um, well, we had um, electricity. And then we didn't have gas. But we had an electric stove, so that was great. And we used just put a fan on top of the stove to heat up the kitchen. And, you know, I just had the oven open. Um, I had, yeah, we fixed up our own rooms, and that was really fun. Like, we didn't have, yeah, like, we didn't have broken windows. We had a lot of bicycles. We had, like, we had to take a, go, go to the, for taking a piss, we could go in the basement. There was a sewer pipe. You could just piss, piss right, right in the you. pipe? Yeah, yeah. I guess girls could piss and then just pour, <laughs> empty the pan. Piss and Yeah. And then, but we would have to go to the uh, uh, 48 street house to take a shit yeah. or elsewhere no I mean you know like it, it was pretty functional some important things to think about well, incredibly important <laughs> yeah I guess it requires some planning of your day yeah, yeah. but there was like uh, half a dozen people maybe who lived there we had a library your standard anarchist you know library resource room that just who lived there used yeah, yeah. <laughs> what know? is what is the state of the place now is it still I don't know yeah. I haven't you haven't gone by there to see what not what you pen has done with it I'm pretty sure it's fixed up okay um, and then there was also a place on the corner there's a triangular piece of land that was a, used to be a nightclub and that was a squat too so that was pretty cool so like we visit our friends there and like 
the ground, they all lived on the second floor where there was actually rooms. But the ground floor had a big dance floor because it used to be a bar, mm-hmm. but it was sh- shuttered. Yeah. And that was before, I guess, there's the, the firehouse there became a farmer's market and now it's a bike shop and it's really up and coming. And like, actually, a, a woman I work with uh, with the National Green Party, she lives at 50th in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. And she just moved there. She's like at the University of uh, Pennsylvania. She's a professor there. And she and her husband and, you know, infant child just, you know, they bought a house there and it's like totally up and coming. And yeah, I'm just yeah. like, this is kind of bizarre. Like, yeah, yeah not, <laughs> not the way it was when you were there. Yeah, which is, I you know, the, it's, just, it's just big changes. Yeah. So at this point then that you're living there, you're, you're fully immersed in, in Philly's punk scene. Oh yeah, and I had been for a couple of years by that point, like going to shows of uh, Revival and Club Pizzazz and hanging out down at the... Uh, record exchange and uh, uh, chaos records and whatever record stores ended up moving into that those that row of record stores and bookstores along the fourth street mm-hmm. low south and then um, I think CI records moved in there for a while uh, whatever it doesn't matter yeah um, yeah and then I started doing Philly Zine because I was like well I don't know anything about being in a band and I want to do something because this is so exciting and visceral and incredible. Mm-hmm. Like talk about you know having your eyes opened. You know I had already like a fair amount of musical knowledge, but this was just a whole brand new world. And so I started Philly Zine, and um, my one of my high school friends, George, to the cover that. <laughs> Maybe you should explain to the uh, listener yeah. if they can't see it. <laughs> this uh, amazing piece of art on the cover. Yeah, it's it's a, a, maybe a three-second drawing of a face. <laughs> it's really, really, really basic. And then um, in the corner is a Philly core thing with arrows and a skull. And my friend Greg drew that. And we actually use that on uh, a bunch of the issues of this Philly scene. So that was sort of the official... Logo, yeah, yeah. yeah. Which uh, I know you showed on Facebook. You had a, is it limited edition one of one T-shirt? <laughs> we, I made a bunch. Oh, okay. Probably. I didn't know if you just three made dozen. It. Oh, okay, right, right. <laughs> but I have no idea. I'm surprised I found mine. You know, um, but the first issue had like Ruin. Sorry, interviews with Ruin, Electric Love Muffin, and McRad, which were three of the biggest bands. Mm-hmm. Then and then it says. So the, what year was that? The, the 1986. Late '86, I was pretty quick with this, I guess. Maybe early '87, because the that ruin show at Crendel's Lair was September '86, um, and uh, yeah. And so I decided to do this almost immediately. I mean, I, I'm a writer and lapse painter, so like all the design stuff and writing kind of came, was totally natural. Mm-hmm. And then the second issue had. Mr. Maida, mm-hmm. insult to injury, I don't remember who they are. Yeah, okay, were they local? Yeah, they were local. Um, Barry, I don't remember his last name. Well, I worked with them at Skins. It was Barry and Miguel Gonzalez and um, Matt Morello, mm-hmm. who's also an artist. He did all those uh, fanzines. And um, Bobby, I want to say Williams is his last name. Okay. I totally, yeah, I, and traded that Pack Dogs, I did an interview with them. Uh, that was awesome. I remember that. 
I know you know some of those folks. Uh, yeah. Rich. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, Rich, yeah, you said last night. Or no, that's the other Rich. Yeah. 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 And then, uh, yeah. So then just kept on going, like morphines, blue pagan babies, uh, legitimate reason. <laughs> Dr. Tree. I that we say Dr. Tree? Dr. At Tree. I don't know what that is. They were, I was not a fan, but they were kind of weird. I don't know, like I think there was some world music kind of thing going on. We I don't remember the XPN much. at the time? Uh -huh. <laughs> were you listening to WXPN at the time? <laughs> but they were like, they played, they were played like with Scram. Okay. I remember seeing that, and that kind of made sense, but they weren't, I don't, I don't remember enough about them. I remember like not liking them. Okay. But I interviewed them. Fair so, enough. Sure. You know, they were part of the scene. Were there other zines around in Philly at the time that Philly Zine was coming in? Sure. Dagger was around. Um, I know, I'm going to embarrass myself because I don't remember. That was, I remember that because he moved out to California. I've been in touch with him over the past maybe five years ago. I ran into him. Tim Heinley? Yeah, right? Uh, I don't know. Weird things to remember. Um, but yeah, there's a bunch of zines. I know now I'm blanking. Yeah. But so, okay, so there was an active zine oh, scene sure, in Philly sure. at the time. Yeah, yeah. And like, you know, I'd sell them at Chaos, I would sell them at Philip Records Change, um, Wooden Shoe. I don't know, did. I, I don't think Zipper had sold zines. Maybe Skins did? Skins. Sorry. Yeah. So it, <laughs> only 30 years ago. Right? I know. I mean, I, no, but it, we, well, we sold, I mean, we had different magazines and stuff, so probably. Okay. Zipper had, I couldn't say, but Skins. We definitely had that stuff there. Okay. Where were you getting it printed? Some print shop did, did it after a while. Um, in, in Philly? In Philly? Yeah. Okay. Because I didn't know, I mean, you know, later, you work with Sean, and there's a woman who down in South Jersey was doing zines that I didn't know if you would ever work with that. No. That whole. Do you know what I'm talking about, or is no. that okay? That, I guess that happened after. Well, anyway, I guess we'll move into that. But um, eventually, you came to meet uh, a mutual friend, Sean Castillo. Yeah. Uh, when did you wind up meeting Sean? Jeez, I, I should have done research. Um, I, I must have known him through, through shows. Okay. Um, and because I was going to shows all the time at that point, you know. Um, and once I, yeah, and so I would just go to the shows with a bunch of zines, walk, walk around, sell them, yeah. you know, for a buck or whatever. And then he probably, honestly, I bet what he did is probably sent in something, some kind of submission of some sort. And then we started talking. And then he ended up doing the zine with me, like co editing it or whatever. And then. When did he come in on that? Like probably 88. And so I was in squat, and then I went away to college in fall of 88 to Antioch College in Yellow Springs, Ohio, for my three-month collegiate career. Three months? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Why was it only a three-month career? It was a waste of money. Okay. I was just not, I just, I tasted freedom after 12 years of school. <laughs> you yeah, know, didn't do what absolutely back not, yeah. yeah. And Antioch is a very open, school like it's liberal liberal in so many different ways that like if, if I was going to make it anywhere it would have been there <laughs> if I was going to go to college yeah. so it was really clear I was like okay fuck this and so came back to Philly for a while and then ended up in late sorry mid 89 
moving to New Haven, Connecticut to manage my friend's skinhead band. What band was that? They were called Forced Reality. And then I built a tour for them from Connecticut out to the Midwest. And that's where I met, first met David Hayes from Lookout Records and Very Small. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. He, he was booking some band. I want to say, it wouldn't have been Schlong because it was too early for them. Maybe Victim's Family. Somebody was going to, yeah. Victim's Family. Yeah. Know. They're awesome. Yeah. They're, um, Great guys. But they were going to, Force Reality was going to play with whatever band he was booking in Shittsville, Illinois. Right. Somewhere. And uh, so, yeah, so like, that's where I first met David Hayes over the phone. And it was obviously off phone in 1989. You know, and like notebooks, scribbled numbers. Yeah, yeah. Trying to figure out. And of course, Force Reality to this day owes me for the phone bill. He didn't go on the tour. Oh, you, they didn't go? They didn't so go. So you booked the whole thing, yeah. Whole fucking thing, yeah. So, um, and then I ended up. I think before that, I spent like a couple months in Chicago because I went out to visit. Okay, sorry. So, yeah, so Antioch College came back, winter in squat. Yay! Fucking awesome. Um, in West Philly, then I went and visited friends in Chicago. My car broke down in February in Chicago, so I stayed there for two months and drove back in April. I got a couple of part time jobs there, staying with them, and then was finally able to leave in April. Still snow on the ground because it's Chicago and whatever. Yeah. And then back to the squad for a while, and then to New Haven, and then back to Philadelphia, then out to San Francisco for the San Francisco Anarchist Gathering in June of 89. I went to that thing as well. Yeah, I you, yeah. yeah, I don't know that we necessarily really I didn't, knew each other then. Yeah. No, I don't think we did, but that was a very seminal experience for me being yeah. at that thing. It was a very, lots of very weird people and lots of good really interesting things going on, you know, especially on the periphery yeah. shows and stuff, but... Yeah, and so, and that was it for me and Billy. Like, I would come back and visit, and, you know, I'm hooking up with um, the Witch Hunt people. For me, it was really cool, like, a few years ago, because they're West Philly, and I was like, this is great, I can, I finally have a foot, like, before that, I would have to travel around and, like, be like, oh, yeah, this is where this used to, that used to, and I didn't really have really a, a lot of connections, like, I knew you and your brother, and I think Sean had gone by that point or disappeared for a while. I don't know what he was doing. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, yeah. I mean, and I was super busy in the Bay Area doing stuff. So it was, it's been actually really cool to be able to kind of reconnect with Philly. Um, and honestly, like, now it's like I can see things a lot more, less, uh, uh, things are a lot less, I'm less emotionally invested in the places I go that used to be X, Y, Z. It's like, okay, well, that's fucking life. Yeah, the march of Shit time. Changes. Yeah, yeah. So like before I was like, oh, moody. <laughs> yeah. And now I'm like, oh, yeah, whatever. Like, I mean, it was awesome, and it's different. Do you retain a feeling of connection to Philadelphia? More so now, because I've reconnected with people who are active in bands that our label puts out. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of awesome. And, uh, but also, like, people like um, the guys uh, from R5 and Greg Dale and people like that, like, they also kind of have been, like, this ongoing presence over the years. Mm-hmm. And so there's definitely been connections. Like, I've been lucky enough to kind of keep a few connections 
uh, over the years. But yeah, I think there's certain people in the city who really remain committed to that and are kind of on their game and, and pretty responsible. So once you make the connections with those people, it's probably a connection that's going to last for some yeah. time. But it is weird because, like you know, uh, like I'll be over at uh, Nicole and Patrick's, and they'll say, "Oh yeah, this band." I'm like, I have no idea who you're talking about. <laughs> Like what? I'm like, well, after my time, like, pretty much '89 was my cutoff for like underground punk in Philadelphia, except for stuff that came out, like Policy of Three, mm-hmm. that actually made it out the West Coast. Right. Or um, I'm trying to remember some, and I would follow some of the bands, like uh, the Figs. I like they had a. I don't even know who that is. Is it that there was a Philly band? Yeah, Figs or Frigs, Figs. There was a band for the Frigs, but that oh, the Frigs. Okay. Okay. That was yeah. And like part of the thing was like, you know, like I wasn't a part of the kind of the bar scenes. I was too young. I didn't have the fake ID until mm-hmm. I got to California. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and so like a lot of the people like last night even like, you know, like I was like, oh, that's that's the dude from uh, Electric Love Muffin. Mm-hmm. No way. But like I, you know, like I met him to interview him, but that's a really. Uh, temporary superficial relationship you know um, yeah you kind of share a moment yeah. and then that's that's it yeah. yeah that was more my time the people that were there last night right which is very close to when I was there but just, oh, yeah. just after exactly I was just after you so. which is amazing that there could be that much of a separation yeah <laughs> in a short time period right yeah. yeah so when you went out for Without Borders did you decide to then to San Francisco was the place, the San Francisco Bay Area that you wanted to be. Oh, yeah, I, I, good. I moved out, out there. Okay. Um, packed up a little GLC, great little car, and drove out there with two friends from Antioch. No, I think one woman, I don't know, she had like a, one of those one word names that was like a. Pickle? <laughs> no, it was like, like Spirit. Oh. Something like that, like a hippie name. Oh. Yeah. But I, it might have been self. Imposed. I don't, I don't wish I had parents. But, and then my f- friend Jason from Antioch, I think they were a thing, if I remember right. I don't really remember. But we drove three days straight, just switched off driving. Because I, I was going to join an art magazine out there. Like I would, and then, join as, a, as a, an employee or just yeah, a okay. writer, whatever. Like, Did you the know, magazine I was really know this? art forum, stuff like that. Okay. And I, that never, I walked, I went to Gilman Street. I didn't leave for 21 years, <laughs> basically, like, because the NBC and Condemnation and Yeasty Girls were playing, the Little Asylum were playing it. Yes, I went, yeah, I was at that show. Oh, there we go. Yeah. 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 And I, snu- I talked my <coughs> way in for free, which I was just like, really? That was easy. <laughs> and then that, yeah, that was it. Yeah, those shows that I saw there were a big influence on the Cabbage Patch Collective, because, uh, no, that's fine. Um, <laughs> just because seeing the way that Gilman operated was something I wanted to see happening in, in Philadelphia. Um, That's awesome. Yeah, so those, those sorts of movies. I mean, I remember my little brother, Bull, was, was very excited to kind of like hear the reports of like what was going on there because, it, you know, you know, it was like the punk paradise where the kids were kind of really running the show in all mm-hmm. these different venues um, and they really were kind of truly exemplifying the DIY ethos. Uh, in they the were Bay organized, area. yeah. Yeah. They were organized and they had their shit together and they had all of these with a crap ton of bands, maybe it places a lot of bands, but like a lot of good bands, I think. And they also had Max Martin Roll, mm-hmm. which you can't over, overstate the influence of that. Like, oh, yeah. I remember reading about Operation Ivy and Isocracy and Gilman Street out here mm-hmm. in Maxim, and you know, every month I'd get it and 
punk bible. Big punk. brother's little brother. Yeah, <laughs> big brother's little brother. <laughs> <laughs> I still have my original Maxim. I think I have the first. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it's I still have them. it's really. I mean, and I think with that kind of attention, like that's, later when people come out and say, "Oh, I want to," you know, this place is so much better than where I'm from. Blah, 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 I'd be like, "Well, no. It's just that there's a lot more attention paid to it." That's the only difference between the bands here and the bands wherever. And I always use Philadelphia as an example. Because, I mean, to my mind, Philly was kind of like the bastard stepchild of the East Coast in terms of shows. Mm-hmm. Like, we're stuck between D.C. and New York and Boston. And, like, bands would always skip, skip over us or they'd go to City Gardens and we wouldn't go to City Gardens because Randy now is a fucking dick. <laughs> That's for sure. And that place was a dump. And there was like a boycott because he lied to Club Pizzazz and brought in the meat men and said that Chuck Meehan said it was okay. And this is all like, you know, third I'm flip so the table I, over now and still so angry about I, that. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and so like, so I was like, fuck that place and it's all big money. Like, why would you pay $10 for three bands? And also, a shit ton of skinheads that would go to the city garden shows. I mean, the shows were nasty and violent uh, often. Yeah, yeah. Lenox City Skins would show up. They would well, they they would show up at Club Pizzazz. And yeah. I remember. Um, so anyway, so look before the war stories. Uh, so Philly was definitely skipped over a lot. We had like all these excellent bands, like not only Ruin and Dead Melton, who I think pretty much ones actually made it out. I think compared to anybody else, but like Ruin, Electric Love Muffin, Morphines, I love that band, Still Stupid, uh, McGrad. Um, there are a ton of excellent bands, and nobody knew them. You know, I mean, I think I would put Morphines up against anybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, FOD made it up too. Sorry. Uh, yeah. 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 Yeah, you can't forget that. Yeah. But like, besides them, and that, that's pretty much it, you know, at least from that time period. Pagan Babies did well. Pagan Babies, yes. Sorry. We're playing tonight. I know. Yeah. And nobody's talking about it. Like I was oh, like, I'm, th- I'm friends with those guys. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Talk. People are so excited. Okay, good. Like, yeah. I was hanging with Nicole and Patrick today, and I was like, you know, pagan babies are coming. Like what? Yeah. I'm like, yeah. yeah. But anyway, so yeah. yeah. They're gonna be great. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Like, and then there was like the okay, and this is from my um, perspective, but like there was, there was like this tension that I felt like in the scene because like, and a lot of it's like kind of like chip on the shoulder kind of stuff mm-hmm. um, like as a city as a scene like well New York you know they're all like you know they get all the attention just because they're the biggest city in the nation whatever <laughs> <Yeah>. details <laughs> yeah CBGB is okay we're not as okay. big as New York yeah I know right <laughs> we're but, not the city I know right but so but you know but I felt and I think a lot of people felt that it was like the level of band the level of the bands was just as high if not higher because we actually knew them and loved them than the bands come out of New York. And I love New York hardcore. I love straight edge sound. Fucking, I saw you today at the Kennel Club in 1986. The Kennel Club in Philadelphia. And it's still one of the best shows I've seen. Like they were an incredible fucking band. I went out and bought Break Down the Walls immediately. Yeah, yeah. As soon as it came out. <laughs> I was like, holy shit, this band is fucking great. And like, even then, like, um, we heckled them. Cause like, they, they preached. You know, and like all that shit about like straight edges or preachers, but well, you today preached at that time. So they were talking a lot between oh, songs, yeah. And we would be like, you know, and that was like my fourth show, and even by that point, I was uh, confident enough to heckle because it was just such bullshit, you know, from what I had at that early age in punk rock, 
early, early in terms of punk rock age. Even I got enough that like, yeah, he's preaching. That's fucked up. Did you have an issue with the fact that they were straight edge? And no. I mean, I mean, that was probably what they were preaching about, right? Yeah, yeah. And, like, unity and all this weird shit. I mean, which, I mean, I agree with. Like, yeah, unity, okay. It's the kind of, like, world peace. Like, I can't really be against it, really. Mm, yeah, yeah. Okay. But to, you know, have somebody preaching at you about it, it's just like, fuck you. It's like the immediate reaction, you know? And, Isn't that what we're railing against in the first place? Yeah, exactly. And so it's... It, so that was... Um, I actually end up getting, like... a tape of the show and you can hear us heckling. Oh, that's great. <laughs> you know, and this is back and forth between Ray Capo and the crowd. <laughs> just, you know. And He's got the microphone. Yeah, so it's a little uneven. Yeah, but, yeah. But, I, but the strangest thing was like an easy thing to hang criticism on because it was so like out there. Mm-hmm. And like I didn't drink at the time. So I was defi- by definition straight edge. So there's no drugs? You no. Do- okay. Yeah, I mean like I got drunk probably the first time when I was 16, maybe 15. But like it wasn't like something I did a lot. Hmm. And it just never really, you know, so I wasn't inherently against straight edge. But the scene was definitely thuggish, macho, really, you know, some really awful people kind of came in and I, I would imagine it's kind of like when hardcore started in Los Angeles and kicked out the original punks from The Mask and like, you know, he had bands like Alice Bag and X or whoever being really bummed out by the middle class or the Kennedys or all those Orange County bands coming in being fast and loud and yeah, they're kind of immediately like, yeah. rendered obsolete and old even though they're probably the age difference is you know really small yeah. but yeah but generation wise and then it was like faster and more violent and so like, that was what near parkour bands were and then everybody wanted to be like them and that was talk about like you know your, your scenes um, her ego like, why do you want to be like them? Don't you want to be, like, original? And, of course, music is not, by definition, original. <laughs> so there's, right. you know, you're always stealing from people, but, like, these people were, like, aping the New York bands. And I think Pagan Babies fit in that a little bit. They definitely had, like, the look. They were mm-hmm. more that seven seconds kind of. But they, yeah, they were seven seconds sound, but, like. They yeah, had, but they like, had that kind of street graffiti. Yeah, exactly. Like, like, like the, the cover of, like, the Hawker Records. Yeah record was like but they were definitely not that mentality right at all oh no no yeah. me- 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 yeah. mental mental yeah. not at all no. but like puppy sneakers yeah yeah, yeah. athletic wear yeah the, the presentation was surely in keeping yeah. with that yeah yeah the um, kind of crossover between rap and, and hardcore that was kind of pretty popular at the time talk about the beastie boys yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. totally yeah. public enemy later nwa you know um but yeah but like so but picking babies were ours and they didn't totally ape them they didn't totally you know, there were definitely other bands that did. Um, I think I've forgotten. Um, but so that was, that was a big deal, was like kind of like the coolness of the, the Philadelphia, the diversity of the Philadelphia sound. It was really fucking huge. Yeah, because there wasn't a Philadelphia sound, per yeah. se. Like these bands, you know, all the bands that you mentioned, none of them sound the same. So no one could ever put a tag on and say, oh, this is Philly hardcore. I could definitely tell because of the guitar tone yeah, totally. or the vocals. <laughs> or like none of those things were present in any yeah. of those bands. Yeah. But, probably works somewhat against the city as well because without There's a no marketable identity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that kinda is harder to sell, I guess, to the world at large. Yeah, so that was that was a big deal. Um, was kind of like that. And so fast forward to California, I'd be out there and people would say, Oh, all these bands like Crip Shrine and Operation Ivy and Filth and Blatz and 
blah, blah, blah. Like, you guys are so awesome. It's such an awesome scene out here. It's like, and I would always think back to here, to Philadelphia, and say, no, you have excellent bands where you are. I guarantee you. It just, the attention just is not paid. And, you yeah. know, coming from a wounded Philadelphian, trust me. <laughs> <Right. laughs> well, it seems to me that, like, Maximum Rock and Roll was, in effect, like the internet prior to the internet for mm -hmm. punk because this was the unit by which all the information was disseminated all of the sure. political and social debates and the wars that people had and the highlights on certain bands and if it's coming out of the bay area yeah. then there's going to be far more of a focus on what was happening there which right. i mean to me as a young person made it seem like this was the mecca for punk and in, and in some ways it was mm -hmm. um because and i also think that a lot of the um creative types around the country who felt out of sorts and uncomfortable in their own world would look at this magazine, see where it was coming out of, and go to that area mm -hmm. to live, because here's the place where they would be accepted, and it was almost kind of like a creative brain drain. I mean, you know, in effect, like, sure. losing somebody like you to that place is like, here's one less creative person in our okay. city who's gone to this other place. And there was a lot of that going on. Right. So you do have like a you know really vibrant scene there and then lots of other folks saying, Well as soon as I turn eighteen I'm going out there. You know, <laughs> right. you know, fuck this place. And then like the you know, the younger people kind of it works to their detriment because these creative forces have left. Right. And who's the dude who's gonna do the, the DIY show? Right. They're stuck with like the bar show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean but at the same time like people move out out of there all the time. And so I mean there's always a turnover and that people do go back. Like I hear people going back to wherever they're from. In the 80s, there was an exodus from Philadelphia mm -hmm. to San Francisco Bay Area. I mean, just in droves. Yeah. Yeah, I, I believe it. I mean, I remember just from the, like, I, I wish I could remember Phil and a bunch of other people from the anarchist mm -hmm. scene moved out there. And I saw them a couple times after I moved out there briefly. Like, Ty Cody mm -hmm. was out there. Rave Records moved out there. Um, and I mean, Todd's still out there. He's, he's booking the Slim Sesson Soccer Club, an alternative. Yeah, he's doing yeah. great. Yeah, Leafy Green. Yeah. Um, but so, yeah, but, but there was also like bands like Scab Cadillac yeah. from Philly. Like, they were grunge before that was identifiable as yeah. a scene. Mm -hmm. Like, I remember, like, I played one of their songs at some, at a DJ night a couple months ago, and I was like, it had been like a long time since I'd heard it. Like, this so up from the 7 inch, and I was just like, Jesus, that's fucking crunch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, it was like 1988. Yeah. <laughs> but they just didn't live in Seattle. Right, hence, that's it. Yeah. yeah. Don't, no, not paying attention. Yeah, did not matter. So your career in career, so to speak, in punk, continued to flourish really when you went out there. Um, so why don't you talk a bit about that? Like you became sure. involved in bands. You know, you weren't involved in bands here, but when you got right. there, when I got there, um, I started to zine because. You and Sean were doing Philly Zine, so that was taken care of. And then, um, so I started a zine called Berkeley Sucks. Uh, did you really, did you really feel that way, or was it just sort of parts of it? Yeah, totally. Yeah. You had fucking Telegraph Avenue. You had Hippies. You had the Grateful Dead was still around. So whenever the Dead would play at the Reef Theater in Berkeley, it would be that much worse. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I imagine there was still, at, at that point, like late 80s, a lot of the detritus of the 60s and early 70s yeah. counterculture, but probably like the true detritus part as well. It's <laughs> like, you know, there's probably some brighter bulbs, but there's probably like the shit end of counterculture that you're dealing with. Yeah, there and also on Hate Ashbury. <laughs> yeah. And Taken over by skinheads for a while, right? Wasn't the yeah. hill? Skinhead hill. Skinhead yeah. hill, right, yeah. And we fought the skinheads 
And at Gilman Street and also in San Francisco on 8th Street, there's a um, ARA March, May 1st. It is anti-racist, anti-racist anti action. Anti-racist so, action. Yeah. Uh, and so we marched down the street, just a ton of us, like punks and lefties and weirdos. Um, and the skinheads, a couple skinheads, Nazi skinheads, not regular skinheads, showed their faces and got beaten up. And, you know, it was like, okay. I mean, out here, like, I, I, I guess I would go back to Philly, like, there was the Atlantic City Skins who came over and they were Nazis. Right. There were Nazi bands, like, arresting officers, I guess, became Nazis. And there was the Uprise. From Uprise, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Allentown had a lot of, uh, Allentown and AC, Atlantic mm -hmm. City had, like, a lot of skinheads come in. Yeah, and, like, they were suburban Uprise and they became the Uprise, or vice versa, I don't remember. Yeah. And... Yeah, I was looking to actually talk to one of the folks in that because I'm really curious about the, the whole story there. I don't know where yeah. those people are, and I know most people that I would know would probably disassociate themselves. Yeah, totally. <laughs> uh, I mean, I remember, I mean, I'll tell you a story about the uh, skins in that club is ass. I'll come back to No, no, goodbye. Later. I mean, it's good, yeah. Um, so, Super Touch from New York were playing at Club Pizzazz, and, you know, they're a very strong anti-racist band. They have songs about Martin Luther King, blah, blah, blah. They're, they have one good song called Searching for the Light. It was on New York Parkour, The Way It Is. Yeah, yeah. Um, everything else they've ever done, I'm not a fan of. Like, but that was one good song. And it's kind of, it's, it's kind of seven seconds. It's like, Searching for the Light. Da -da 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 -da. You know, that's really kind of very melodic. And, but it's a good song. So they're playing. And it's like 200, 250 people. And there's like five Nazi skinheads. Who, of course, are terrorizing. Yeah, the that's the way it always seems to it's, work. Exactly. And so like... So the so super touch is like yeah this song is about Martin Luther King blah blah, blah and like the five Nazi skinheads are like in the middle of the they dance floor like see like, Kylie and tell, flip, flip, flip them off and calling them whatever and so they play the song and then super touch for the next song they say okay there's five of them and two hundred fifty of us why are they still here right and the crowd just like woke up and massed and just threw the skinheads down the stairs. Because Club Pizzazz, as you know, it was on the second floor. Yeah, yeah. So threw him down the stairs, kicked him out of the show. Mm -hmm. And it was like, holy shit, this is awesome. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, that wasn't the end of the story. It went on because I'd helped, um, I volunteered to get in that show. So I stayed after the show. And the skinheads stayed outside, down in the little parking lot there, waiting for the band to come out so they could beat him up. Yeah. And so we're all up in the second floor looking down like, oh shit, there's a bunch of skinheads who want to beat up the band. And we're, they want to load out and get the fuck out because it's the northeast and there's skinheads outside. You know? Yeah. And so we ended up calling the club or the promoter, whoever it was, and upon the cops. Cops showed up. Cops knew them, of yeah. course. Fucking Philadelphia cops. But somehow, and like they they came back with a knife. Like that, like they were like not nice skinheads. Yeah. I mean, not, you know, they were bad Nazi skinheads. Not, not the pleasant <laughs> not Nazi skinheads. Not the good Nazi skinheads. Yeah. <laughs> but they were, yeah, they were, seri they were seriously yeah. assaholic. And they, um, so they finally got driven off by the cops eventually. Like after like saying, oh, hey, brother. Um, and so they were able to load out. But I remember like, I was like, fuck, we're trapped here. Because like there's like two ways out of Club His Ass. And they're both basically, they're both visible from the parking lots. You can't sneak out. And besides the band has to, load out their shit. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you can't run with the Marshall cabinet. <laughs> right, yeah. It's you know, a little awkward. So, so yeah. Do you remember who was booking the shows at Club Pizzazz? Oh, Chuck Meehan. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, 
it was chucked me in, and then um, I remember the skinheads got so bad that they stopped. He stopped booking shows at the club his ass for like a short time to kind of like so that they wouldn't show up because I think they would just show up. If there's a show, and yeah. I, I know that happened out out at Gillen Street in Berkeley. Like they wouldn't care what the shows; they would just hang out outside. Mm-hmm. And just, Assholes, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was yeah. It would happen at City Gardens as well. But I remember being at a pizzazz show where there were skinheads macing people in the pit. It was a Murphy's Law serial killers show. There was this a skinhead who would, and no one knew who exactly who it was. But people were just getting maced in the pit, and there was, there was like a bottle fight at one show outside of Club Pizzazz. Chicken. And yeah. I was I was really young. My brother was three years younger than me. He was right. at the show as well, and it was terrifying. I mean, yeah. Yeah, the neighborhood itself. Is, is a volatile place that probably doesn't want you there. Yeah. And then there's all of these weird people who are significantly taller than us, they still are, and, <laughs> and there's bottles flying over our head, which is also right. creates for an interesting mix and a yeah. Yeah. formative uh, young experience. Yeah, I mean, I remember like being in the pit, like a re- revival, like, and like dancing and just being fucking bowled over by huge skinheads who would, who would like target me, you know, because I wasn't dancing how they liked, Yeah. apparently. You didn't have your bomber yeah. jacket on? Yeah, I didn't have my bomber jacket on. But when I was managing the skinhead band in New Haven, Connecticut, the next a couple years later, like we went to the Anthrax in Connecticut, and I was with those guys, the, the equivalent of those guys, mm-hmm. who targeted me in Philadelphia in the pit. They were my friends at this show, these shows that I went to at the Anthrax. So, and But these yeah. were not like fascist No, they were, minded. but they, were, they weren't. They had their problem. They had their issues. Right. So what, what then was your connection to them? I mean, how did you get on with them? As... My, my first band, my first band that lasted more than one show was at Antioch College, and the guitarist was a skinhead who was in Force Reality. And so he was like, you, you should come and visit, and you can book us a tour and hang out. I'm like, yeah, sure. What the hell? And then a few months later, I did just that. Mm-hmm. And... He and I stayed friends for the most part. He ended up moving to Boston. He joined Wrecking Crew, and he ended up being part of FSU, <laughs> which is a pretty volatile, rough gang, punk slash skinhead gang in Boston. So yeah, it's like, it, you know how conspiracy theorists, like they draw connections from one person to the other based on the associations. Mm-hmm. Like, he's an association to me that's, like, really different from most of my other associations. Right, right. <laughs> but you did do a song called uh, Fuck Shit Up. Did with song Black, Fuck Shit Up, yeah. FSU, so... Yeah, I know, right there we go. Clearly. <laughs> yeah, was your connection. Clearly, yeah. <laughs> um, but, and Fuck New York actually was written about the, kind of, like, what I was just saying about, like, the, the bruised ego of Philadelphia. The Philadelphia scene was like, fuck New York, you know, fuck you guys, you know, fuck white power, fuck your macho bullshit, and a subset of that of that is like, fuck you for not paying attention to all the awesome bands in Philadelphia. Yeah, wee, wee. <laughs> yeah, totally. Some catapult yeah, babies. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, and I, I, I recognize that. But, you know, it became a song that, you know, yeah. a bunch of the kids like. So, fuck it. It worked. Yeah, so we should actually, I guess, get into that, because San Francisco, you begin to play in some bands that became rather well-known. Uh, so... So, yeah, so I was volunteering at Gilman Street. I lived down the street, um, like, a block and a half, or a block away from Gilman, like, on Gilman, at 6th and Gilman. And Gilman Street is at 8th and Gilman in Berkeley. And super cheap rent um, and for me. And so I was able to actually be pretty much, more or less, jobless for, like, a year, year and a half. 
during that time. So I did a lot of stuff on the scene. I did a lot of band stuff. Um, I did a lot of stuff on the radio on KKLX Berkeley, which is the University of California at Berkeley radio station that I'm still DJ at, producer at. Um, so I got up there and this band was practicing in this office space there one night. And I walk in and it's Eggplant and Marshall and Joey. And they're like, we need a singer. And I kind of kind of burst on the scene with this Berkeley Sucks thing. And it was really adrenaline-fueled ranting. And it was different than, it wasn't as scene-oriented as Philly Zine. Like, I still talked about music, but there were, I think we did maybe one interview over the four issues of it. But, like, we did, we had a gossip column. And, like, you know, I'd be, be bitching about, like, you know, oh, you know, self-satisfied and again a lot of it does come from Philadelphia Philadelphia definitely sh shaped me a lot scene-wise because mm -hmm. I came out there and like everything was handed to people on a platter frankly yeah, like, yeah. that's Martin Roll and Gilman it's like you guys have fucking I don't hear you fucking complain because you right. have it oh they will complain yeah they'll, they'll complain <laughs> but there's no reason to complain but I'll call you on it you yeah. know and so like people like Aaron Comibus were like really offended he was like, how can you hate Berkeley? What, Berkeley, what has Berkeley ever done to you? Blah, blah. I'm like, fuck that. You know, fucking Telegraph Avenue, you see the fucking hippies and the fucking, you know, spare changes, fuck that shit. You know, blah, blah, blah. So they, so Eggplant and Marshall and Joey knew that I was already a shit stirrer. So they were like, you should be our singer. Mm -hmm. And I tried out for a band called Square Meal, named after Tabs of Acid. Square Meal. Oh, God. And they were like, ah, yeah, we don't want you to sing. I'm like, okay, fine. <laughs> and then like two weeks later I joined Blast and then we ended up being on Lookout Records in the whole nine yards <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah your, your song is kind of like a, yeah, the fucked shit up song is sort of like the, the crusty you know chaos punk anthem know, uh, which is very weird considering like <laughs> you, you do not strike me as a crusty chaos punk yeah oh god yeah that song Jesus so yeah so um, I wrote fuck shit up um, the lyrics and then because they had written this fucked up song Musically, it's fucked up. It's like, dun, 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 repeat. Yeah, tonight we're gonna fuck shit up. And yeah, so I had to fit lyrics to that. I was like, dun, 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 dun. So I wrote that, and then I had um, Fuck New York, already written. I had Hustler, um, and then we wrote others. I think I might have had a couple other songs. And like, I brought some other songs to this other band, Square Meal, and uh, still others. I think Hustler, I'd done in that band with my friend in Yellow Springs. We were called Project Y, okay. after Project X, yeah, which is the this joke straight edge band yeah. made up of straight edgers. Right, uh, people still love to this day. Oh, I love it. It's a great song. It's, it's a really good record. It's yeah. Straight edge revenge. Yeah. yeah, you know, drunk in the pit, looking for a fight. We just might. Uh, sorry, Re regress no way. Um, but so we were called Project Y, and Antioch was just kind of an aside. And so basically, and we had three shows, and it was me. It was this long-haired woman who loved grunge this is 1988 so she was like in the green river and she this band like you know those bands like nobody had ever heard of mm -hmm. and she was a rocker um this skater guy uh i think we had a goth guy too it was like this weird like like a small scene like you have one of each yeah and so that was our band and then the skinhead guy was a guitarist and he was actually he and the bassist could actually play so they wrote most of the songs so we bundled like every show was just we would throw things and punch people and we had like our sec own security crew and this is at Antioch College so, like, like a lot of 
people in like hippie fringe jackets. Yeah, yeah. You could probably beat up the entire audience awesome. yourself. I mean, that's the was, best thing about being around hippies. It was fantastic. Like it was. So we we started uh, me and uh, the singer Jen. You know, and it was like Blatz. It was like like male female singer, and so like we would be all over the place and like yell and scream and threaten people, and we started put to put X's on our hands, like straight edges, and we were like, yeah, we're straight edge, and like we get fucked up all the time. <laughs> but like it was such a weird thing, like it was so alien to most of the people at Antioch that like, they had no idea that we were obviously making a lot of fun of the whole thing. Did they think that you were a fascist or something? I mean, coming in there, 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 was, a, there was a letter to the the, uh, the paper from somebody who we didn't know who's like concerned about this new group of straight edgers on campus. <laughs> awesome! <laughs> that was so <laughs> fucking great. Propaganda. Yeah, it was fantastic. We're like, yes! And so like we had, we booked a show with ID Under from Chicago. So they came down and played. We were trying to get, we were trying to get Switching Weasel because I had seen them the year before in Chicago. But they couldn't make it, so we got ID Under, which is Doug Ward, who was in a bunch of other bands. Even now, I think he's still in bands, um, and in Chicago. And so he's part of the Underdog Collective, and just, you know, blah blah. That's a whole other story. But like, um, so some of those ba- some of those songs made it to Blatz. Like Hustler was me and Jen t- t- writing a song about playing pool. Mm-hmm. You know, and yeah. you know, so that's on. So we, we ended up, so I ended up being in Blatz. We ended up getting two female singers, Anna and Annie, basically because it was a miscommunication. Like, somebody was like, oh, we should get a female singer. I was like, yeah, that'd be great. Like, you know, I was in a band with Jen, and it was awesome. You know, it made a lot, it kind of added to the chaos factor, mm-hmm. frankly. Right. Um, and so somebody was like, yeah, we should get Anna, or maybe they said Annie, but both of them were friends. Mm-hmm. And so people, Different people asked each of them, uh, right. so they both so they both showed up and were like, "Fuck it!" <laughs> yeah. So then there were six of us, and then it was just like a bundle of chaos from then on. It was already pretty chaotic. Like I got naked the first show we played um, at Eggplant's backyard um, in the suburb of uh, uh, the East Bay called Pinole, and it's also where half the East Bay scene is from. It's from the suburbs, you know, from Pinole, Rodeo, El Sobrante. Um, people from Green Day are, well, they're all Rodeo. Um, and then it's all these poor working class suburbs, mm-hmm. just on the outskirts. And then, like, you go to Berkeley or San Francisco to, like, for, like, the culture. Right, and then go back to. And then go back, yeah. yeah. And, like, Eggplant would skate, like, 15 miles to Gilman Street. Jeez. Back. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just, like, kind of crazy. Um, was the being naked a, a part of the performance generally? With yeah, yeah, it was shock value. Mm-hmm. And then, was it just you in the band doing that? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. And you know, I was, you know, tall, and wiry, and you know, people didn't really fuck with me because they thought I was crazy on stage, which was good. Yeah, because yeah. like if you're naked, you're pretty vulnerable. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah, very, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. By definition, yeah. that's why I'm never naked. <laughs> I don't ever want to be vulnerable. Everybody shows naked. Either. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. Record. <laughs> but yeah, but then. Um, my next band, The Grups, um, a couple years later, like I stopped being naked on purpose. I was like, okay, I don't want to be known as the guy who always gets naked every day. The naked guy, yeah. I've known yeah. a few naked guys, and the, the moniker sticks usually. Yeah, you know, and it was like, okay, it's time for something different. So like, I would like cut myself, so I'd be bleeding all over the place. What, what were you for real? Cut yourself. Yeah, with usually fingernails, and then like here, there's, there's still like colloids. 
there. Oh, Jesus Christ. That's yeah, from they, Razor. Yeah, yeah, to the uh, listener. Yeah. Because he's got some serious yes. fucking scars on his chest. Yeah. yeah. That's a razor blade from, we played with Fugazi in 1993. Now it's, so Ian gave you the blade. <laughs> yeah, 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 he was really stoked. Yo, use it as well, man. Yeah, yeah. No, he, he just, you know, finished you know, snorting a line. <laughs> no, uh, absolutely You just not. said that. Damn it, damn it. <laughs> um, but he, uh, so, uh, the, 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 but uh, that was 1993, so that's 20 years old. Those Kellogg's are 20 years old. I, they'll be with me for life, clearly. Right. Like, there used to be more of them, but... I, so, what, I, I mean, it's hard for me to comprehend ever purposely harming myself. <laughs> and when I talk to you, you know, yeah. you seem to be a rational person. So, Thank like, you. what... <laughs> I appreciate like, that. Like, what is it, is it like a different Jesse that, you know, to the one that I sort no, of know? Um, it's a couple things. Like, one, it's showmanship. It's part of, like, I have a very strong belief that when people see a band that I'm in, I want them to leave with an opinion. If they leave saying, eh, whatever, then it's like, fuck. If they hate it or love it, awesome. Right. Either one is fine. I mean, I'd rather they love it, obviously, and like buy multiple copies of whatever record I'm selling. Yeah. <laughs> but that, that never happens anyway. But, you know, but like, and so the spectacle is, to me, is like really important, especially for a live show. Um, and I used to not give a lot of credence to studio recordings at all, which there's a couple of criminals records that I wish would just never show up ever again in anyone's record collection. You're not pleased with the production of the records? Yeah, and like, <clears throat> I'm off, our old guitarist, the guitarist at the time was out of tune, couldn't play, you name it. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, it was just, everything was just off. And, and you're always singing with these bands, right? Yeah, I'm always singing. You don't play? I can't, I can't play, no. Okay, right. Um, but yeah, but I mean, for the, the cutting was... That was like it's control, because you have your own existence within your hands. I guess you always do, but like I mean, I, I'm always somebody who thinks that you know things like assisted suicide. Like, yeah, it's your life. Like, it's a really, it's a really uh, serious decision that affects more than just yourself. So I'm I'm not really in favor of suicide in general, but at the same time, like, it is your life is in, within your control. Mm-hmm. And so, or it should be within your control. And if you're incapacitated, you should be able to say, okay, here's, unplug me under these circumstances, or please help me end this pain that I'm in, you know. Um, and, you know, I work with the disabled uh, community out in California, and that's, the, there's a lot of difference of opinion about what I just said. And Peter Singer, a philosopher, came out with a lot of information about the, a lot of thoughts about assisted suicide. And he's a very controversial person for those in the, within the disabled community for those opinions. So, is or is it his opinions in line with yours? I don't know what he said. On he's that matter, he's kind of more um, more into euthanasia of disabled children mm-hmm. or children within uh, fetuses, and so he. So that people who are living independently, who are physically disabled, rightfully see that as like, well, that would mean me not being here. Mm-hmm. And I have a full, healthy life. You know, I do this, I do that. My family is my family, friends, lovers, whatever, you know. Um, so yeah. And I agree with them. Like, yeah, that is kind of, fu- that's pretty fucked up. But at the same time, like, the control of one's own life is, I think, also important. Mm-hmm. And so. It's, it's a kind of a slightly different thing than what he's in. he was espousing. I think he might have backed off of it or 
because he's gone back and forth with disabled activists over the decades. This is like a couple decades ago he put this out. Um, so he, he's probably changed it. Anyway, um, but that's where the cutting came from. And um, also it's like at the Fugazi show we played, um, I had a shirt, I heart my attitude problem, like in big letters, you know, like, like you know, like I, like with Virginia, I heart Virginia, I heart New York with a big yeah, heart yeah. Mm -hmm. symbol. Yeah. And so I cut through that with the razor blade, so it was like blood and like tattered bloody shirt that says I hurt my attitude problem. Yeah, yeah. To me it was like perfect. Like it just <laughs> It is a very strong visual. Yeah. And so that um and then I realized, oh wow, that's really fucking deep. <laughs> you know, and then like you know, it was a big show, it was like four thousand people, so like they had medics there, so they just put butterfly bandages on me and I was fine. Oh, nice. Yeah. It it wasn't that much blood, it wasn't I didn't lose like a pint of blood or anything. Right. You know. So the cutting was never is never part of sort of your personal no. Right. So it was purely a performance. Yeah. I mean, we did. I mean, I, I don't have any tattoos. So unlike pretty much anybody I know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just, I just never did uh, get a tattoo. Um, so that was kind of my own body mod, and like, like, I, so I have cut like I have a heart cut right here um, next to my groin. Um, it means I love my cock. Yeah, I don't know what it means. <laughs> well, because I would always like I'm gonna um, if I would get a tattoo, it would be a black heart. I don't know why. You love black heart procession. Joan Jett and the black hearts, please. <laughs> okay, all right, fair enough. Yeah. Uh, plus, you know, cinder of the black cinder of my uh, soul as well. Oh come um, on! Look at that smile. <laughs> no black you can't cinder. see the smile. Ah, he's smiling. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that was. Uh, uh, so yeah, so I also we had a fake youth gang called CST, called Claude Still Talking. I have a CST up here. I can't, oh, there we go. You kind of see it. It's really, really faint right there. See CST. Oh yeah, that's right. But yeah, but it's really. Claude is in the Quit Talking Claude. Quit Talking Claude, exactly. Seven Inch by Crimpshrine on Lookout. Yes. Predated when I moved out there. Great record. Yeah, and uh, so a, a few of us were hanging out, drunk and nostalgic. So we decided to start a fake youth gang called CST. <laughs> and then I wrote a song uh, for the criminals called CST Bitch. And it's all about how we were just kids having fun, and now you're looking back and seeing it as like this golden age, and it's just Claude's still talking, like there's still things that are active and going on. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, and it's called CST Bitch, and I don't think people, and that doesn't actually appear in the, song, in the lyrics at all. So oh, that's just the, it's just the title, yeah. Okay, right. Yeah. Um, so criminals, there were. Uh, oh, it was after the Grups, yeah. Right. Okay. And then that went on. We actually toured the U.S. and Canada a bunch of times with criminals. Played Dobbs with Kid Dynamite. Kid Dynamite's third show supported us, and they were excellent. And that's where, I, that's where I first met them. Was that show, and then. You know, uh, I just interviewed Mr. Kid Dynamite and yeah, stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Dance. And then. Yeah, Dan was great. The Frisk we played from two thousand to two thousand five. Um, so Blatz was 89 to 91, Grups were 92 to 94, Criminals were 94 to 2000, Frisk were 2000 to 2005. I did, we did 11 Grups shows in 2010, including a show with Filth, which was bizarre, at Gilman. And then, Back from the grave? Yeah, like basically Steve, who does this thing called The List, he was having the 20th anniversary of The List, and so he 
asked me flats we'd get back together and I'd always said no but then I was like oh, fuck it I don't care I was like if everybody's down, to, down for it sure it won't be flats that you loved because we're all older and heavier and we you know like Anna's like a professor Annie is a mother I haven't talked to her for years Joey's a t- school teacher uh, Marshall's still doing the exact same thing he works in the radio and eggplant is eggplant and so we're all here and so that ended up not happening um, uh, just because uh, one of the people was going to be out on tour and I don't know if they would do it anyway but that was their excuse so they didn't even have to really think about whether we would do it but the grups I was like I'll talk to people and everybody was down so we had Daniela who is Daniela C from the L Word HBO series about lesbians yeah, I've never seen that show before but she's on that show yeah she's in seasons three and four the last two seasons yeah and like the, so the groups we started out with Kamala and I and Anna because Anna, Anna and I quit Blatz because we kind of we wanted to go out on a high point mm-hmm. and also there were internal things that were happening where we were just driving me crazy I think it was driving her crazy and Anna and I are just we click as friends and we're just you know so we, we loved writing together and performing together so we started a new band with Kamala and Matt Freeman from Operation Ivy now Rancid um, and then our friend Deb who did a zine anyway I forget her zine but anyway hey zine good enough yeah Max Mark Roll zine woman and like Blacklist Mail Order and all that stuff very cool yeah, yeah. yeah so like she was involved with all that stuff and so we started that band, and then um, Rancid started at the same time, and then Matt quit. To, we did a tour with uh, Offspring, actually, um, in 1992, when, and it was like Offspring, like we headlined on the northern part, and they headlined on the southern part, because they were from Southern California. Yeah. And so we played like Olympia and Seattle and maybe Montana, I don't know. We got as far as Colorado, and so we just bit basically did a big circle and then down through the southwest and ended in LA and um, yeah and that was like Offspring had just signed to Epitaph so we are making fun of them for signing to a big label <laughs> yeah and you know oh the shape of things to come I know right yeah <laughs> and go and go right <laughs> yeah and so it uh, and then like Matt quit because Rancid started being more serious and like they, Rancid and the Grep started the same year 1992 and then so he's still my best friend so uh, we still see each other all the time and so they started so we got Daniela and this new bassist Dagny who worked at a thing called Punks with Presses in the Bay Area and so he um, was on bass and Daniela was on guitar and then it was Anna, Kamal and I and then we did a US tour with that and we went to Europe toured with Susan Fish in Europe and then did a second tour in Europe on our own, and then we broke up. Then we came back after playing in France in January of 1994 and just never played again until 2010. Like, we didn't break up, we just stopped. Right. It's weird. I don't know. Anyway, I'm not going to get it. Sorry. So at present, you work for Alternative Tentacles, yes? Yeah. Oh, and uh, the Criminals are playing again, too. Oh, good. Yeah. Uh, on a regular basis, or...? Uh, no, every once in a while. We did a bunch of shows in, uh, we went to the fest in Gainesville last year, 
we did a bunch of shows in the Bay Area and South California. We're going to do the same thing probably this year. Not not best, but we're going to do a couple shows. Very good. Uh, it's fun. I'm, I'm starting a new band too, finally. What it's is the, what uh, is the new band? We, I don't know. We don't know the name yet, but we have three people who need a drummer. Yeah, good luck. Fucking drummers. Yeah, it's always the worst. But, yeah. uh, so at present, so, you, you work for Alternative, alternative, <coughs> alternative Tentacles. Are you running the label, and what is your capacity the, over there? Sure. I'm the general manager of Alternative Tentacles. Um, Jello Biafra is my boss, and uh, it's always <laughs> exciting. Like, there's always something going on, like some new project that he's doing, or he gets contacted by somebody. It's like, okay, this is kind of weird. I mean, for like many, many years, right, like people from our generation before from punk rock have been moving up in the entertainment world, and you saw that when... In the 90s, when all those bands were being signed after Green Day and Nirvana hit, and then all of a sudden, like, you know, butt trumpets on a major label, you know, and like all these weird small bands that were like Jawbox, you yeah. know, Jawbreaker, you know, other jaw bands, you know, they all, um, and that was because, like, our generation before became A&R people. And same with ad advertising agencies. Like, when I first heard, you know, you heard Trio or Iggy Pop. On oh, yeah, car Lust commercials, less for life. On, it, it, Lust for yeah, life, yeah. It was on the, the cruise commercial, which blew my mind. But yeah. then I realized it's our generation working in the industry. Yeah, yeah. And so, there's always weird things that pop up for Jello because you know he's a punk rock icon. Mm -hmm. He's Jello fucking Biafra, like him, Ian MacKay, mm -hmm. Henry Rollins. Yeah, there yeah. you go. Yeah, three, yeah. You know, and then. Um, so yeah, so I've run AT, I've been the general manager since 2008, I've worked there since 2002. Before that I worked at Lookout Records for a few years, a couple of years in the late 90s. Now Lookout took a precipitous Lookout. dive into the toilet. Yes. Yeah. Uh, any comments on the <laughs> demise of Lookout? Okay, there's, <laughs> yeah, I have a lot of comments on <clears throat> um, So I was on Lookout with Blatz and Phil, I was in Phil, but Blatz put out a split record with a band called Filth, also from the East Bay, called The Shit Split. Shit Split, yeah. And that's the record that everybody knows. Um, and we also did a 7-inch on Lookout before that, called Cheaper Than Beer. And then they passed on the grubs, and we put out our own 7-inches, thank you very much. Um, and then when we did The Criminals, we did a 10-inch on Recess Records, a 7-inch on the obscure label called Hair Hurt Records. And then Lookout finally was down to do a record with us, with Criminals, so we did this record called Never Been Caught. And then Adeline approached us, and by that point we were in debt to Lookout, so they were like, Ugh. and at that point it was like mid-90s and everybody thought that, everybody was looking for the next Green Day. Mm -hmm. We were certainly not it. You know, we were like, I have like a very, rough vocal style, like very like snarly and whatever. And it just, we're not very melodic. But know? the girls love you. Uh, yeah. I, <laughs> I don't know about that, but yeah. <laughs> but it was, but it was, you know, like we're definitely not the, the pop, the next pop punk band to come out of, off of Lookout. And Lookout, of course, is where Green Day began. And so everybody, and by that point they were huge. And so they'd already put out Doogie, they were put, they put out Insomniac, they were probably working on whatever the record after that is, whatever that is, and then they, so everybody's looking at Mr. T Experience, The Queers, Reaching Weasel, 
Groovy Ghoulies, High Fives, not the High Fives as much for Green Day-ish, but those other bands for sure, mm. you know. Um, and so there was a lot of money flowing through, and so we went into debt really quickly because we just borrowed against our royalties that we weren't making to rent yeah. bands and shit. <laughs> so Lookout was like, yeah, we're not going to put out your next record. You owe us too much money. And besides, we have this band called The Donnas and all these other things that are kind of floating up bubbling up so we're gonna you know pass and by that point I was actually an employee there and I was like fine whatever so we went to Adeline because like that was the new label that Billy Joe from Green Day had started with Doug from Scoot 32 and Adrian his wife and Jason White I think was already part of it or maybe he was just working there Jason White from this band called Chino Horde in Arkansas yeah, yeah, yeah. and he moved out and now he's the fourth member of Green Day and he's been doing that for like 10 years, but he's officially, like he's, you know, like it's not an, it's, it's, it's official, I guess, at this point, but I mean, you know, he's still like the second guitarist. Like yeah, I was reading that, that Comet Bus on tour with Green Day thing where he's yeah. been, I don't know if you read that as well, but he kind of mentioned this, you know, not really being in the band, but always being with them. And, yeah. You know. So Jason was like the other person, part of Adeline. So like, like us and AFI, one, ten, one, one Man Army, their first record, Criminals, Burning Flesh and Broken Fingers. Yeah, and so we helped. And that was really cool because it was like, you know, here's this guy, Billy, and he's like, we're going to do this label, but you have to know, we're not sinking money into it. Just because I'm in this mansion that we're recording in, in the basement, doesn't mean that you're going to get all this money. Like, this is going to be run as a business. And we're like, that's fine with us. Like, yeah, you know, yeah. we don't really have much use for a tour bus, frankly. Like, mm -hmm. you know, um, and it worked out great. Like, we were able to, and they really helped us with, um, he helped us with kind of production, like guiding the band through the record. And he was like, at one point he was like, you need to write another song. There's two, three songs. I was like, what? So we wrote a song in a day. It's on the record. Mm -hmm. and it came out really well. But it was just like, the weird shit like that was pretty instructive and like Billy Joe has always been really um, supportive and it, like he recorded some earlier some early versions of the criminals and he recorded uh, never been caught for lookout like he read all, all of that recording in his earlier houses basement studio right. you know so it was just like it's um, and it, it, it's, it's, it's a, in that way it's a kind of a small scene like there's you know, like, I mean, now it's like the, one of the biggest bands in the world, which is bizarre to me, but it's been that way for a number of years, so it's not bizarre to me anymore. Yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah, it's quite amazing that they've retained that level of popularity for such a long time, because usually those bands, you know, blow up pretty quickly, and then that's it. Yeah. And there's very few bands that can keep that, but, like, they, they, they started working hard from day one. And, you know, I mean, I've, you know, personally, and I've made this clear to them, like, over the years, like, you know, they, they've made choices I would never make. Like, to me, like, a major label is still a big fucking deal in a bad way, mm -hmm. you know? And, you know, I'm 42, but then again, I'm not going to be offered that, so it's really easy for me to say that. Right, yeah. But, this, you know, but it is, but I've also made it really clear, like, I'm not, yeah, it's not something I'm interested in. I just, there's a, so that's why I'm proud to be with Alternate Tentacles, because, like, we are small, tiny, much smaller than people think, but we've been around since 1979. And we're still hanging on by our fingernails, and you know, is it perfect now? But is it generally above board? Yes. 
Yeah, I mean, it's really, yeah. uh, and it's, you know, Jello owns it. There's nobody else. Yeah. You know. Now, I was going to ask you, does Jello drive you batshit? But I don't imagine that that would be, <laughs> even if he did, which I'm not saying he does, you probably wouldn't be answering that question. <laughs> no. <sighs> Jello is, he's, he's a great guy. He's super friendly. Um, he can be um, very exacting sometimes. And like, he's somebody who is savvy enough to let people like me and my coworkers run the label and he doesn't micromanage too much. Mm-hmm. Um, he's also super busy, which is good for us because we can concentrate on the nuts and bolts, making sure that things get re- arranged and produced and pe- things are repressed and messages get through. Um, for many, many years, he would... Okay, so here's the story. I mean, I tell this all the time and this is not... Uh, so for when I first started working there um, in 2002, 2002, mind you, he did not touch computers. Okay, he was absolutely adamantly uninterested. Do you think they were controlled by Ed Meese or something? (laughs) Ed Meese. No, he. At one point, he said to me, "Like I'm too old to learn how to type. I don't know how to type." And I'm like, "Well, Uli, one of the previous general manager, to this day hunts and pecks." I'm like, Jello. So what he, what we would do is we would print, he, he, he has an email address at the label that, you know, the staff answers. And Alter Tangles has always like acted as kind of like a, a personal assistant for Jello, as well as our regular jobs there. Right. <laughs> so like whoever works there, it's always been like this kind of two-pronged thing uh, as a company. Um, so we run his email address until like, there's a lot of emails that don't have to be answered by him, but some he has to see. Some are urgent, some are not so urgent. So we print them out on paper, fax them to him. It's 2002. <laughs> yeah. Fax them to him if they were, or if, if they were urgent. So there's no mimeograph machine no. in there somewhere. No, thankfully Or an not. abacus, perhaps. <laughs> thankfully <not. laughs> He replies with a cave drawing. <laughs> oh, I know, right? Yeah. So he, if it's urgent, he would write on it reply with a pen, fax it back to us, and we type in the reply via email and send it off the next day. Yeah. Um, if it wasn't urgent, we just print out the email, put it in his mail bin, and he'd get it every week or two weeks yeah. with the rest of his mail. And so it's insane. And that went on, and it we still fax a little bit, uh-huh. but in 2000, uh, 2003, 2004, we gave him a cell phone right from work, and we, we had a betting pool in the office, like, how long? I was like, two weeks. It's going to be two weeks, and he's going to be like, fuck this. I don't like being in touch with everybody all the time. I feel like I'm on a leash, whatever. Like, And that's all, like, I empathize with that, but... There could know. be a song coming out of this. Yeah, there probably was a song. I don't know. You know maybe cell phones, like, man, the worst. Yeah. Um, he calls it his smell phone, but he still uses it. I think partly because, like, like once he finds a use for technology that fits what he does... He's not going to fit himself to the technology, which I think is actually a pretty healthy outlook. But in the meantime, we're faxing shit back and forth, which is just not an efficient way of doing things. And like, I would print out, I would have to print out color copies of, color printouts of records to proof. And I'd bring them over and he he would say, well, I can't, this is too 
I can't read this. I'm like, yeah, because it's a printout on paper, of course. Yeah, yeah. If you sent the image as a JPEG and you could look at it, you and see you the proper larger colors. Yeah, yeah. On the computer screen or on your cell phone screen, whatever, your iPhone. And so finally, he's much more computer compatible than he was in the past. But not as. So he has a Prodigy account now. Yeah, totally. <laughs> he's on AOL. Yeah. So he's a. Uh, but yeah, but, but up until like really, really recently, he was completely computerless and he would say, I don't have time, I don't have the expertise. Um, and I think he's, through recording, through studio recordings, he's learned how useful things like Pro Tools can be. And he's seen firsthand like how much time it saves. And I mean, you know, recording now versus like ribbon tape, holy Moses, you know? Mm -hmm. And there's definitely an issue of fidelity, but with, well, the fidelity more happens at the mastering and lacquer cutting point than the recording point. Because when you're putting stuff down on tape or to a computer file, you know, it's just, it's a signal, it's a noise signal, that's it. Mm -hmm. It's what you do it afterwards that makes it warm and analog or not. I mean, I, I, there's probably half a dozen like purists right now who are like madly typing on the computer. <laughs> yeah, well, Jill is not going to get the message, so it's all right. <clears throat> all right, so I guess we'll, we'll, we'll sum the thing up. Uh, so many years on, uh, you remain involved in this subculture that you discovered at a very young age, so clearly there's something about it that keeps you interested in it. Is there any way to describe you know what that is or what what it is that still draws you to this thing, and also why is it do you think this thing still exists after all of these <laughs> right. all of these many years Jesus. and successive generations? This is kind of a big question, but um, and you've got five seconds to answer. Okay, forty two. <laughs> uh, no, I'll give you a towel. Fuck. Um, can we split that up? Oh yeah, yeah. You do whatever you want. Why, okay, why are you still involved in there this thing? Thank you. Um, this is my professional interviewing skills at work here. Yeah. <laughs> and good night. And see. No, um, oh, I still love the music, obviously. And, like, I still go to shows and sometimes catch the opening band. Like, I'm much more regimented about seeing shows because I think as you get older, you get less tolerant of seeing the same fucking thing um, on stage. But, you know, bands still come out of fucking nowhere and for me still and that it's like looking for that first high again you know when you first saw that band that just knocked your socks off mm -hmm. like you know when I first saw Ruin my first show headlined it I was like holy shit what the fuck is this and Electric Love was a very close second by the way like they played first for some I don't know why it's weird but they were awesome and they played like the Muffin March and Drunken Horny it was great loved that shit and then like Ruin played and like that feel of that, like, everything just being blown wide open musically and um, uh, culturally, socially, is still, makes me alive. And, you know, and creatively, like, there's things like zines or writing or art or music. Creatively, like, you know, I love doing and it fulfills me and, um, you know, even being a DJ and having the depth of knowledge of music that punk rock has helped push me. Like, I would probably not be listening to country if Matt and Anna and the Grubs had said, hadn't said, we love X, 
I was like, oh, yeah, that was good. And I learned a bunch of love X, and then they were like, you need to listen to this guy, Johnny Cash. I'm like, oh, yes, country, I don't know. I'm from Philly, I don't <laughs> fucking know what we're talking about. <laughs> yeah, and then, you know, blah, and the Johnny Cash, and then now it's like outlaw cut, and blah, blah, you know. So, like, but it's, so it's like a stepping stone that's it's, it's still giving, basically. Um, and then um, I love it, like, musically, like, like the guitar sound of like negative trend is perfect. Like that negative trend four song twelve inch is to me like if somebody said what's a punk record, I'd be like, that's it. Mm-hmm. It's got bad words, it's got uh, songs about politics and it's got songs about depression and drug abuse. What's not the love, you know? Um, and but also uh, politically too. Like I'm somebody who if I can't sleep at night, like I have like a strong moral, personal moral sense, and so if I can't sleep at night, something's wrong. Like I'm either whether it's a job, whether it's a decision, I'm thinking about making some kind of ethical thing. You know, I have to do right otherwise I can't sleep at night. And so, I mean, I don't always make the right decision. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying I'm some paragon of virtue here, but like, I, I, yeah, it's, it's it's a very important thing. So like with punk rock, there is an inherent ethical framework that I really love because it is like hands-on do-it-yourself do DIY like Catch Collective Gilman Street Max Mark Roll Philly Zine you name it like you know every fucking band that throws their shit in the van as crappy as they may be they're throwing their shit in the van and just saying fuck it let's go mm-hmm. you know and that adventure and it's all within this ethical framework which is really great and I still love it yeah. Uh, and quick question, Luscious? Oh yeah. Did that answer the rest of that question, by the way? Uh, well, I guess, well, then why do you think the... the oh, why is it still, still going? Yeah, okay, sure. You know. Well, you know what's weird? Like, we were talking about the ad agencies being infested with our and former generations of punks. Mm-hmm. Um, it's bizarre to see, like, there was the big uh, MoMA, or what, the New York Museum, that had the big I think punk culture was, was moment. Yeah, it was very recently, right? The style and yeah, right. Like you know, and like how that was just it was this huge uproar. Uh-huh. These people were like, "That's not punk rock," or it is punk rock, but not really. But it's all like the Sex Pistols and Vivian Westwood sex shop. That's like 1976. Yeah. What are you doing? Mm-hmm. You know, and like all of the like you, you see all of the threads of punk rock in all of these different. Uh, Places and some of it's really inauthentic, like the MoMA exhibit, like Justin Timberlake earlier saying, like, "I've always loved punk rock." It's like, or there's somebody like that who was like, or Justin Bieber, some somebody, one of those people. Yeah, or when you see the star wearing the obligatory black flag, it's always black flag shirt, or yeah. the spiky jacket, you know, that they bought off a crusty punk, and it's this conflict in gauze or you know, jism or something on it. Yeah, and it, that's really, really annoying and like sometimes heartbreaking. If I, if I it would be heartbreaking if I didn't laugh at it, right? But like, so it's become like a part of our culture, but I think the reason it still exists is because it is DIY. Because there are fucking kids in the garage, the proverbial garage, or literally their garage, one or the other, who are pissed off. And they're a garage garage band, yeah. Yeah. They're pissed off, and their mom doesn't understand, their teacher's giving them shit. They, you know, they can't get a girlfriend or boyfriend because they like chess too much. I don't know, whatever the problem is in their lives. Like, and there's, they want to bash out shit on instruments they can do that they can go to there's like in Bears Bear, Bear, Bay Area girls rock camp and like so it's like all kinds of gender both genders are getting involved and like but really specifically 
which is awesome, which is a big change, I think. Like, it's a lot more like, there's always like women in rock, mm-hmm. you know, but I think, and it's always like Joan Jett, Chrissy Hines, and like a couple other people, Janis Joplin, and that's it, you know. But now, like, there's like, you know, you have your Courtney Loves, you, uh, Kathleen Hannes, you, uh, you have people like, you know, Pink, Lady Gaga, bless her, you know, who are just, I mean, and the whole, the word punk is so funkable, you can't really put, you can't really encapsulate it so that you can say like, oh yeah, Lady Gaga is definitely using some very punk iconography and approaches to music and art. And you could make that. Mm-hmm. You know, she's also like a multi-millionaire shapeshifter yeah. as well. Like, you know, and that's just kind of part of, the, you know. Yeah. Or you could look at, say, Pussy Riot, who's using punk uh, as a form of social protest that gets him jailed and affects millions of people around the world paying yeah. attention to that. Yeah. You know, of whatever they chose to use to kind of express their ideas, they're calling it punk. Yeah. All these years later, and it's way more potent than like, you know, kids in a basement. Uh, yeah. It's tremendously potent. Yeah, but it's interesting because you have people come in and use the term and co-opt the term, and part of me hates that, but part of me knows that like, there's still kids. I mean, obviously, at you know, all of us see shows brand new bands with young kids in it, or even like older kids um, who are just getting into punk rock. And they love it, because it's so visceral. And it's not like, like the problem with the hippies is that it was so tied to a specific time and group of bands. And it wasn't as open to experimentation. Like punk rock you have everybody from Wire and Penetration and Magazine and Talking Heads to Ramones to Ruin to Electric Love Muffin to, you know, Toxic Reasons, to whomever, you know, to Bikini Kill, to Pussy Riot. There's no limits. Yeah, and that's, I think that's why it's survived, because it, it is, it's not limited. Um, plus, it's not full of dirty hippies. <laughs> there are a lot of dirty punks who kind of look like dirty hippies <laughs> with their gross dreadlocks. Yeah, well, I, you know, <clears> there's certainly a considerable it, crossover there. Unfortunately, yeah, they break my heart. Um, <laughs> Slash Crusties me, break me, your heart. Yeah, they break my heart. <laughs> slash, make me want to hit them. Um, and I'm not a pacifist, but I don't hit people generally. It's okay sometimes. It's okay sometimes. You're in Philly now, so you I'm can fucking fine. hit everybody. Yeah. <laughs> and they fucking simple. deserve it. <laughs> yeah, not in Berkeley. But. but no, so okay, Blatt's fuck shit up. Like you mentioned, like it's a crusty anthem. Yeah. It bums yeah, me they're out. They're your people. They love your song. They love my song, and I don't like them. <laughs> and this is why, because like. I see a punk spare changing and they're not necessarily desperate. Like I squatted. I was destitute. I begged for money once in my life and I was like, fuck this, I'm never doing this again. And it was awful. Like, you know, I've dumpster dived and that's fine to me. You know, like I'm like, yeah, whatever. It's the, the, the you know, a society of uh, a, a society of such wealth has all this great stuff that is just discarded of course you should reuse it mm-hmm. or d- dig it up whatever um, but yeah like I tried begging once and I was just like this sucks like I feel personally awful mm-hmm. you know and so I see punks or people who dress like punks or whatever I would say dress like punks spare change can making it like a virtue and um, I it just 
really upsets me. It's their lifestyle choice. That why should you have to support their choice in life? Yeah, I mean, I'm toler- I'm very tolerant, and I think as a community we should support each other, um, like through taxes, for instance. Like you know, I don't use a lot of police services, but part of my taxes go to if my house gets broken into, I have somebody to call. If I get beaten up and mugged, I have somebody to call. I can call the paramedics, you know, whatever. But I don't want to use that. I don't have kids. I'm not going to have kids. But I help pay for schools because, well, A, I have to. B, it's a good thing. Libraries, yeah, thumbs up. I pay for wars. Not so good, you know. Um, but but spare changers, I, I can't. And I'm really bummed that they take at face value a song, Fuck Shit Up, which is at least partially tongue-in-cheek. It's not all tongue-in-cheek. But, I mean, you know, I'm not a fucking idiot. Not to be egotistical, but, like, I'm not an idiot. Like, you know, like, tonight we're going to fuck shit up. Like, yeah, you know, snort, uh, shooting up and, oh, yeah, how does it go? Drinking 40s and snorting speed. Live fast dying is what we need. Okay, well, I'm 42. I live pretty fast, but I didn't die young. But you did put an idea out into the world, and I guess... To the detriment of your sarcasm, you <laughs> yeah, do totally. say to people that this is a cool thing to do, which yeah. for some dumbasses and lemmings are going to be like, oh, that's punk, and this is what I should be doing, drinking 40s and snorting coke. Yeah. Now, the ashtray or absolutely Zippo, they're not going to know what that is, but the other shit, I mean, you, know, yeah. you do put an idea in someone's head. Yeah, and like, but I think it's, I mean, a lot of these people, frankly, are going to be people who are going to gravitate towards that anyway, so maybe they would use... Nirvana lyrics instead. I don't fucking know. Or, you know, uh, I don't know. Maybe, yeah. But what you put out into the world is your contribution to a dialogue and is your contribution to art or ideas. Mm -hmm. I'm not taking you to task for this song, but I mean, that is, you know, you put the idea out there. I wrote that song, yeah. And and other people are going to take it as they will. And clearly, some people have taken that very seriously. And like, or, you know, I definitely take it in like, think of like, fuck shit up like rebellion and like not taking what they're serving you at face value at all ever you know like all those different things like to me are like super punk rock in terms of like the attitude and the approach to things and like you know sabotage fine you know like there's limits or there's places like like there's always the discussion in underground circles about uh, stealing who do you steal from if you steal at all Mm-hmm. You know, do you steal from the mom and pops? No, no, you don't do that. But people do all the fucking time. But they somehow they fuck. I can't sense the the post hoc rationalization people do. You know, like I I did that too when I was a young punk. Like I would like do things like you know like metaphorically kick over a garbage can and say um you know that garbage can is helping bring the end of society as we know it because it'll help make things so bad that people will have to rise up. Yeah, but then there's like. You know, making the jerk-off motion as you, as you say that. Yeah. You know, actually, I took your friend, our friend, Becca, to task one time when Becca. I was walking through some neighborhood in Philadelphia with her, and she just threw some trash on the ground. And I said, why, why did you do that? She's like, oh, it doesn't matter. The whole city's a dump or something like that. And I said, but there's some person who lives here, and this is their neighborhood, not yours, and it's not your right to trash their neighborhood because right. it's not yours to clean up, and it's not, you didn't put an investment into it. Yeah, exactly. Well, that kind of stuff drives me fucking bonkers. And, like, I love Becca. 
but I'm sure she's better. She's much better. This was 300 years ago, by the way, <laughs> and we've gotten over it. But I mean, it's like as an example of just like this kind of like random chaos. It really just means nothing because some poor dude has got to go by and you know write this thing and pick up this gross trash that you know you yeah. kicked over. Yeah, there's always someone who's kind of like coming in behind, cleaning up after the people who behave poorly. And, and but recognizing that and acting in a better way because you recognize that and you know talking about like. Because to me, things are really, like, I have a class analysis. I'm not a Marxist or whatever, but, like, to me, class is really, like, economic class is really the basis of inequalities. So, like, yeah, I mean, like, so when I hear about, so that's one of the reasons why now, you know, I see kids for changing, doing stupid shit. I'm like, yeah, somebody has to clean that up. And it's not going to be you. Mm-hmm. And, but DIY is all about doing it yourself. And so we clean up our own shit. We clean up our own mess. And so, like, if you're not doing that, I don't really think that you're, you deserve to call yourself the P-word. You know, and I self-identify as a punk. Man. Even now, even though I'm an elected official. <laughs> you're in the Green Party, right? And I'm a, in the Green Party. Yeah, but you're elected official of what? I mean, uh, wasn't I'm me. on the Berkeley Rent Board. Okay. I was elected in 2008 and re-elected in 2010, and I'm running for re-election in 2014. I hope you win. Thank you. Me too. Um, I'll be bombing I want a patronage job, by the way, when you get the <laughs> whatever that might be. Yeah. <laughs> the janitor of all of Berkeley. <laughs> right? Oh, you don't want that job. I'm tired of this place, man. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, so, yeah, so that, that that's my feeling about Frost. I just can't. And I, I, like you say, like I have some responsibility for one of their anthems. Fair enough. You know, a long time ago at the Berlin Farmer's Market, I don't know if either of you have ever been there before, it's a hellhole, but uh, I found a giant Blatt's embroidered patch for the, you know, the beer label, and it's massive, it's a big triangle, and it's exactly that, and uh-huh. I thought, oh, this is so great, but, you know, because I like the band, and then I thought later, like, I'll be able to sell this on eBay someday for a large <laughs> amount of money, and then I realized, like, other oh, people who like that, they're not going to have 12 cents to buy yeah. this thing, so, <laughs> so it's still sitting at my parents' house in a, in a drawer. <laughs> Right? Yeah. It was a nice find at the time. Okay, we should wrap this drawn up. But uh, real quick, what is the what is the Luscious? Why is this? Luscious, is right. My airnet and band name is Jesse Luscious. And that's because um, in Blatt's, Anna, one of the two singers, her real middle name is Joy. So she went by Anna Joy. And so like I was using a bunch of different names, like Jesse Dangerous, Jesse Ramon, whatever. Just I just switched from day to day. And then we were talking about it. We had kind of a serious conversation. We realized we wanted more sex and less violence in punk rock. So there's already enough violence, you know, Sid Vicious and Johnny Rotten and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, Paul Bearer. <laughs> Dinah <laughs> Cancer, you know. <laughs> you know. Um, so, and Luscious is ridiculous. Capital R, ridiculous. So, it's like, yeah, Jesse Luscious, that's great. <laughs> it's hilarious and funny and... Um, and very sexy. Very sexy. Oh yeah, total. The sex. Makes me think of a naked watermelon. <laughs> um, okay. <laughs> That's what it makes me think of. That's an awesome comment. Um, yeah. No. Okay. Now I'm just gonna think of watermelon. Naked watermelons. Don't look at their seeds. Yeah. Don't look. <laughs> <laughs> dripping goodness. All right. I think we should end the interview. Also, it's so fucking cold in here. I've been shivering. I don't know if it was vi- visibly shivering, but I've been shivering through the entire interview. Oh, sorry. It, it didn't show. Okay, good. Okay, anyway, thanks. Awesome. Thank you.